So yes, my name is uh, Bill, and uh, it's great to be with you guys tonight. I am uh, a member of the PCF staff. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that. And um, tonight we are returning to the series that we've been uh, going through this fall in 1 John. And so if you do have a Bible with you tonight, uh, get that open to 1 John and chapter 3. And we've been looking at some of the major themes in uh, this short New Testament book. And we've seen uh, that John is writing to... <laughs> Just to unplug that. Uh, that he's writing to encourage and to strengthen uh, believers in Christ. And one of the themes that he keeps coming back to over and over again is the theme of love. And I know we've already had a message from 1 John on love, uh, but, you know, John devotes so much of this short letter to this theme. It's like he can't stop talking about it. Uh, the word love occurs 26 times in this, one of the shortest books of the Bible, and, and it occurs more than in any other book of the New Testament except the Gospel of John, which John also wrote. <laughs> And which is much, much longer. And, you know, which raises the question of why, why does he devote so much of his letter to this theme, this topic of love? And I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is historical, contextual. The people that, that uh, John is warning these Christians that he's writing to about, warning against them, are, are, seem to have rejected the priority or the value of love. And so John wants to correct that deeply false understanding. And, and why? Because John had sat at Jesus' feet. He had listened to Jesus himself. He was there on the night when Jesus gave his followers. He said, I give you a new commandment. What? To love one another, he said, as I have loved you. And so John knows how important this is. And further, he understands that love, genuine biblical love, and we need to let God tell us what it means to love. John understands that love is a necessary identifying mark of a Christian. It is a necessary sign of life, that indeed uh, there is eternal life in a person. And, and you know, and that the opposite of love, uh, hatred, is a sign of death. So John will say something like this, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides or remains in death. Right? Those are strong words. But love is not optional. There's no room for you or for me to say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, Sure, I believe in Jesus, but I don't care about love. I care about my quality of life. I care about my health. I care about my future. I care about my work. I care about my fulfillment, but I don't care about love. John is saying, no, you can't do that. You can't imagine that you are a genuine Christian if you don't love. Because love is a sign necessary sign of life in Christ. No love, no life. 
And John keeps coming back to this. And so we're going to come back to it again tonight as well. And here's the text. Uh, back to 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. And let me just read. I'm just going to read 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or his sister in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. So I want to just look at three points. I'll start with E, which may be a mistake because you may get them confused. But the first is the example of genuine love. The second is the evidence of genuine love. And the third is the expression of genuine love. The example, the evidence, and the expression. The example. John says, by this we know love. And here he doesn't offer some kind of a definition. Rather, he offers this striking, powerful example of an expression of genuine love. He says, Jesus showed us what love is. What love does, he showed us when he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. And you know, this is so familiar. If you, if you, if you are a Christian, maybe it's too familiar. Because you're like, yeah, I know that, Bill. But let's think for a minute. What, why is this such a powerful example and a necessary example for us? Let's think about it. First of all, he laid down his life for us. First of all, Jesus did that voluntarily, freely. He was not, he was not coerced. And he himself makes this very clear. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. You know, I mean, if, if, if a parent, and maybe some of you had this experience, if a parent tells her kid, you know, maybe the kid's have had a fight, and, and the parent tells her kid, you know, go hug your brother, right? You ever been told to do that? Uh, maybe the child will obey, you know, her mom and go hug your brother. But we all know that that might not be an expression of genuine love, right? Why? You know, because it's not a freely chosen act. Jesus freely, voluntarily chose to give up his life for us. In this is love. And then he did it for us. It was a free act for the good of others, for, for you and me here in this room tonight, he saw our situation, he saw our need, and in our case, you know, what was our need? That we're, we're guilty, we, we stand guilty, we stand condemned to death before a righteous God. He understood our need and he understood what that need required, what it would take to rescue you, to rescue me out of that situation. It required an acceptable substitute. And the only action that could address the predicament that, that we were in was for him to lay down his life in our place. 
what makes Jesus' death an act of love and not an act of insanity is that it was for us. Right? I mean, I, I was reading something about this, and the person was saying, well, if I were sitting, you know, on the end, maybe I'm down, down by the boathouse of Lake Carnegie. It's a summer day, I'm sitting down at the end of the dock, and someone comes along and jumps into the water and drowns to prove his love for me. I mean, how would I react to that? I, I would find it completely incomprehensible. It would be unintelligible. It would be, it would be crazy. It would be senseless. And I might be much in need of, of, of love at that moment, but, but that action would have no rational relation to any of my need in that moment. If, on the other hand, I had fallen into Lake Carnegie, and was being sucked into the muck. <laughs> if I had fallen into Lake Carnegie and, 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 I was, and I was drowning and someone ran and jumped into the water to rescue me, well then I, clearly I, I would say that is a great, tremendous act of love on my behalf. And so we need to see that Jesus' action in dying upon the cross is not only free, but it's for us. And it was also costly. It cost his life. He endured humiliation. He endured death on a cross. We talk about the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And what Jesus is saying to his followers, what John is saying to us, is that Christian love is sacrificial by its very nature. It gives freely. It is for the sake of others. It is costly. And over and over again in the New Testament, we see this, it's really an inseparable connection between love and giving, sacrificial giving, right? Um, John 3.16, many of you know that verse, God so loved the world, what? That he gave his only son. In Galatians 2.20, Paul talks about how Jesus loved me, he says, and gave himself for me. In Ephesians 5, Paul urges us to walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrifice to God. Romans 5.8, God shows, demonstrates, proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then here in 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when, when we want to know what genuine love is, the kind of love that God desires, we need to look to Jesus as the supreme example. By this, he says, we know what love is. But then, secondly, let's, let's think about the evidence of love. Let's go back to the text. Notice how John says two things there. First, he, he says, following after the example and the teaching of Jesus, he says, we ought, therefore, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So this is, this is one appropriate response on our part 
to the love that God has shown us, to the love that's been lavished upon us in Christ. And yes, perhaps, there are some incredible stories, motivating stories. For some, maybe not often, this is the ultimate sacrifice that people do give their lives up in death for the sake of others. But John doesn't stop with that. He continues, and he makes it plain that genuine love also calls us to make the lesser, we might say the more ordinary, we might even say the more likely sacrifices. Notice in verse 17, he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John Piper wrote this about that. He says, verse 17 brings Christian love down to earth in a hurry. And it places Christian love squarely in the midst of everyday life. Right? I mean, don't imagine that, that you are filled with God's love if you're not willing to make everyday sacrifices on behalf of other people. James, in his letter, says something very similar. He says, you know, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, sorry, sorry you're suffering, uh, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? Is that love? The, the evidence of genuine love you know, is never merely warm feelings or sentiment. Love has to be the willingness to surrender that which is, is valuable to me for your sake, to enrich the life of another. You know, I, 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 see, I see you're hungry there. Here, let me give you some of my bread. I see you're freezing there. Here, take my coat. I see you're, you're struggling. I, I will slow down and walk with you. I see that you're you're lonely, I'll be your friend. When, when Paul, I love this, when he's giving husbands instructions about marriage, you know, what does he say? He says, well, husbands love your wives. You know, and I'm like, okay, sure, I'm good with that. Um, but he doesn't stop there, right? He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's all of a sudden like, whoa, that's not what I was thinking. You know, I mean, my wife, Debbie, if, if Debbie asked me, you know, Bill, will you, will you do the dishes? And I'm like, oh, honey, I love you so much. <laughs> Just not in that way. <laughs> right? I mean, what, what is that? What is that? Is that love? You know, a young man sends a, a love letter to his girlfriend and says, darling, I... I'd climb the highest mountain, I'd sail the widest ocean, I'd cross the hottest desert just to see you. Oh, P.S., I'll be over Saturday night if it doesn't rain. <laughs> I mean, it's silly, right? But love gives. You guys know the, uh, the, the musical, The Sound of Music? No, that's not the one. You know the musical... The Fiddler on the Roof? 
Have you guys seen that? How many people have seen that? I don't Okay, a lot of people. So it's really wonderful, and if you haven't, I recommend that you see it. But so the story centers around Tevye, right? He's a Jewish milkman uh, in, in the town of Anatevka, Ukraine, and he's struggling to maintain his Jewish faith and his traditions. And, you know, one of the challenges that he faces is he has three daughters who are pursuing the modern notion of marrying for love. And there's this really funny and sweet scene between Tevye and his wife, Golda, where he says, Golda, I've decided to give Perchik, that's a young man, permission to become engaged to our daughter, Hodel. And his wife, Golda, is like, what? He's poor. He has nothing, absolutely nothing. So Tevye, yeah, but he's a good man, Golda. I like him. And what's more important, Hodel likes him. Hodel loves him. So what can we do? It's a new world, a new world of love. And then he asks Golda, do you love me? Do I what? <laughs> do you love me? She's impatient. She thinks he has indigestion. She thinks he's a fool. But finally she responds, do I love you? Well, for 25 years I've washed your clothes. I've cooked your meals. I've cleaned your house. I've given you children. I've milked the cow. I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? She thinks, well, do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then do you love me? Well, she says, I suppose I do. You know, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's perceptive, too, because Tevye is thinking of love in terms of romantic feelings, in terms of sentiment, and Golda doesn't see much value in that, because she thinks in terms of actions. And we might say that genuine love involves both, right? Both heartfelt care, compassionate, sacrificial action. Debbie had a friend who told her years ago, if you love someone, tell them every day. And that's good. And most days we do that in our house. But love requires more than words. Genuine love gives. It makes the ultimate sacrifice, but it also makes those lesser, everyday sacrifices. It does the dishes. The evidence of genuine Christian faith is self-giving love on behalf of others. And I wonder, you've heard this before, some of you, if you were to be arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The example of Christian love, evidence of Christian love, the expression of Christian love, let's go back to the text. John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When he says not in word, his point is not that our words cannot be a significant way to demonstrate love for one another. Scripture makes plain that speech is a really important way to love. In fact, our, our words can be one of the most significant ways we show love to others. And, and in, in our day and age, I was reading, oh, don't even get me started, I was reading comments on Planet Princeton, 
post uh, just this week, people use words as weapons more often than not, and we really need to be reminded that we can use our, our words as instruments of love. Sharing the gospel is a way to, to use words to love another person. Those can be some of the most loving words you could possibly speak. The problem that John wants us to see is that our expressions of love can be hollow if they're not accompanied by action. To say and not to do is not really to say truthfully, is it? And, and our imagining that we're practicing genuine love can be, really sometimes be just that. It's in our imagination. If we're using the language of love, but we're not accompanying that with the actions of love. And so I think, you know, in, in just the last few minutes, to do a little bit of self-examination, I can remember a student that I was meeting with, this is years ago, not a current student. <laughs> uh, and he was taking a course for which there was some required reading that was only available uh, for short periods of time from the reserve reading room. Do, do they still do reserve reading room? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. And he told me, uh, as we're talking, in just a very matter-of-fact way, he told me that he had taken a book out of the reserve reading room and that he was keeping it in his room <laughs> so that other students would not have access to it. <laughs> Whoa, that was an interesting hour of conversation with that student. And, and um, you might say, well, I would never do anything like that. But, but you know, love is, is more than just not doing evil, not doing harm. It means doing good. And I just want you to think for a few minutes, are you paying attention to the people around you? Are you alert to the needs? Are you alert to the burdens that others are carrying? I mean, what are you doing to lighten someone else's load? What are you doing in response to someone else's need? One of the things I really, I really appreciated about Scott and Tina last week, if you heard them, they're talking, sharing with us about their medical work, serving Christ in Ethiopia, and also here in the States. And one thing Tina said was really helpful to me. She was acknowledging, you know, when it comes to serving others in love, she was acknowledging that there are so many needs that it can just be overwhelming. And she said, who is the person right in front of you? Start there. Start there. Who's the person right? It, it reminded me, there's a, there's a satiric character in um, Dickens' great novel, Bleak House. Uh, Mrs. Jellybee. Does anybody remember her? <laughs> it was that. Anyway, Mrs. Jellybee, uh, Dickens describes her you know, in, in his way. He says she's a telescopic philanthropist. And he makes great fun of her. She devotes her time and energy to setting up a mission in Africa while ignoring the needy in her own family and in her own neighborhood. And, and sometimes, I think, you know, we can imagine that because we give a little money to this or that great cause, that, that we are practicing genuine Christian love. And all, all the time, we're mistreating 
taking advantage of and neglecting the people right in front of us. And so, I, you know, I want to ask you tonight, who are the people right in front of you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe people right here in this room, how are you loving them? Think of your family members. How, how are, are you loving them? You know, perhaps when you're here at Princeton, you seem so spiritual to uh, your, your friends and your classmates, but then you go home and you treat your parents like servants and your siblings like annoyances. Think of those in front of you on this campus who may not know Jesus. How are you loving, how are you loving them? And what, what do you have to offer? Paul Miller, uh, some of you read some of his books. He says that genuine love involves an exchange. I give my time so that you can get a better grade in a course. I sacrifice my enjoyment of doom scrolling the news so that my wife can have someone to talk to at breakfast. <laughs> sometimes. She has to call me out on that sometimes. <laughs> Jesus took our shame so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. He was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. And through his poverty, we might become rich. Love gives. What do you have to give? What are you given? Perhaps the most sobering phrase for me in the passage we're looking at tonight is when John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. And I just think, oh Lord, how often has that been me? But then I'm reminded again of the great love that God has shown me in the sacrifice of Jesus and his patience with me and by his grace that love can even take root in a hard heart like mine. You know, there are great needs all around us, and they can be overwhelming to consider, but don't ever let that become an excuse for doing nothing. Genuine love will mean responding to spiritual need, yes, but also to material need, with compassion and with generosity. Let us not be those who close our hearts to others. Let us love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. You know, many of us know, many of you know John 3.16 by memory, and that's great. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But do you know 1 John 3.16? By memory. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, let us not love in mere word and talk, but in self-giving action and truth. Amen. Amen.